Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. J. William Jones is not a household name, not even in the households of Civil War talk radio listeners. But in 1906, a former rebel general called him the greatest living Confederate today. Who was he? A devoted Baptist, a wartime chaplain who had known Jackson Lee and Jefferson Davis personally, and a man whose life's mission became the promotion of the lost cause version of Civil War memory. We'll learn his fascinating story from Christopher C. Moore, author of Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists, and the Development of Confederate Memory. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, not speaking for the university or anyone else. My guest, likewise, speaks only for himself and no institution. It's uh, The reason I'm here in the Brewster Building tonight is because at home the, uh, the Internet service is, is not working right. I think it could be our, our modem. I think it is a, a Fisher-Price model that is somewhat out of date and needs to be replaced. So I'll be standing in line for hours at our local cable shop tomorrow when I should be doing something productive. Uh, but that's um, not not a problem. We'll, we'll get that straightened out. Meanwhile, I've got good internet here uh, in the Brewster building. I've also got a noisy uh, piece of equipment out in the hallway that they just turned off a moment before going on the air, which is great. Uh, apparently, it's some kind of testing for the safety of the environment here, as we've had an unusual number of professors suffer 
some serious ailments in the last 20 years. I'm hoping I won't be one of them. Uh, but they had this testing device just roaring out in the hallway until moments ago. Fortunately, it's gone, so we can talk quietly now and enjoy the good things about uh, ECU and college life in general. Uh, this past weekend, I saw what uh, might have been the, the best thing I've seen in college football in, in many years. And it was not uh, the Pirates here at home, ECU demolishing uh, Tulane, 52-29 to 29 or whatever it was. It was a big score. Uh, croakers online still complain about it, still whine about the coach. I, I can't get over these people who have no lives. Can they not dedicate themselves to civil war study or something more productive than complaining about the coach? Um, the uh, But that was not the best thing that happened this weekend in, in uh, college football. It was my alma mater, Michigan, playing at Wisconsin. And if you're uh, a fan of Big Ten football, you know that Wisconsin has a tradition between the third and fourth quarter where they play uh, an old song from the 90s called Jump Around, and everybody jumps around. And it's quite a sight to see however many they have, 80,000 people all mostly wearing the school colors, red and white, all jumping around together. It's, it's very impressive. Uh, and it leaves the visiting team you know, somewhat intimidated and demoralized, all these people simultaneously jumping and laughing and shouting. Uh, but this week, uh, when they started the jump around celebration, the visiting team, Michigan, uh, just joined in. They ran off the bench on the field and jumped around, waved towels, waved their hands in the air, danced, spun around, uh, and took all the energy out of that celebration for the home team and uh, co-opted it for themselves. It was psychologically brilliant. You, you can't complain about the other team taking your... Uh, Celebration. I mean, it's a fun, happy thing. It's not like they were making fun of it or anything. They were just joining in. Let's all jump around, said the announcer. Michigan said, okay, we will do. Uh, but at the same time, it it, it it's it reminded me of Mr. Bean, like like uh, the bad guy doing something to, the, to Mr. Bean. And he's so innocent, he thinks it's fun and goes along with it. And... Uh, you just can't help but but love his his innocence and naivete. Uh, I felt like Michigan; they weren't being naive. They knew just what they were doing, and they were winning the game, and they ended up winning big. But it was the cleverest uh, tactic to turn the other team's loud group celebration into something you can join in with. Uh, favorite sports moment of the year, certainly. Favorite Civil War moment of the year is coming up this week as uh, we begin this hallowed ground, the tour of. Civil War sites put off now because of the pandemic since, what, 2019. Really looking forward to going out there. I hope you'll be one of the people joining us. If not, sign up for a tour this coming spring. Uh, better news is that the federal government is not going to be shut down this coming week, so the Park Service sites will all be open. Although looking at the itinerary, I see a number of the restaurants we normally uh, make part of the tour are in fact closed because of uh, COVID. So uh, the tour will be different this year. We'll, we'll try some other things. I'm sure it will be uh, just as good as ever. Anyway, we will miss one thing. Uh, listeners, do you, you may recall hearing uh, John Hennessy on the show talking about the second battle of Bull Run. He's the author of Return to Bull Run, the standard book on that topic. And 
John has been a Park Service historian for many years at uh, Chatham Manor, the headquarters for the Fredericksburg and uh, Chancellorsville sites. And every year was a real highlight for our tour to stop at Chatham and look across the river at Fredericksburg and have uh, John gather us out on the lawn and just talk. It always seemed it was just off the cuff for 20 minutes, the most interesting uh, observations and comments. He would tie things to current events. He would talk about the meaning of the house, the meaning of the war in front of us. It was just one of my favorite parts of the tour, and I'm glad for him that he's moved on to the retirement phase, but we will certainly miss him this year, and uh, we'll have to find... We'll, we'll, we'll do something else that'll be interesting and entertaining, but uh, but John Hennessy is, is a great historian, and we will certainly be sorry not to get to see him. We will, all of us, get to hear other great historians in the weeks ahead. There won't be a live show next Wednesday. We'll hear a repeat, but on October 20th, Ronald C. White will join us. I can't believe I've not had him on the show yet. He's written many books about Abraham Lincoln, and his latest is called Lincoln in Private, What His Most Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. On the 27th of October, we'll finish up the month with David Mowry returning to the show, uh, talking about Cincinnati and the Civil War, and we'll run a few shows in November. Uh, North Carolina featured with Michael K. Brantley and a really interesting uh, personal story called Galvanized, the Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate, uh, who is also a relative of his. We'll talk with Brad Asher on the 10th of November about Stephen Burbridge. He was the most hated man in Kentucky. And we'll talk about the very popular General R.E. Lee on November 17th with Charlie Knight and his monumental new publication, From Arlington to Appomattox, Robert E. Lee's Civil War Day by Day. And we'll finish up the uh, fall-winter season here with Carrie Janey uh, returning to the show, old friend of the show, and a book that I've started reading early because it's just irresistible. It's called Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. And we'll wrap up with Deborah Willis, professor of English, and her uh, exquisitely illustrated book, The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. That's on December 8th. So lots coming up. Uh, Join us for that. Go to the website, impedimentsofwar.org. See what's there. Mark Gaffney keeps it up to date. He puts up a button for PayPal. You can donate to the show that way. It's just a gift. I can spend it any way I want. Not tax deductible. Don't make that mistake. Uh, many people are in federal prison today because of that mistake, I'm sure. Uh, don't be one of them. And uh, those, those donations to the show are always very much appreciated. Also appreciated are the authors we have on the show, and tonight's author is Christopher C. Moore, instructor of history and religion at Catawba Valley Community College. It's in Hickory, North Carolina, out west of here some distance. And he has written a book called Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists and the Development of Confederate Memory. Christopher, are you there? I am here. Glad to be on the show. Welcome. It's good to have you. Um, this book, 
I'm trying to remember how it came onto my desk. If if your publisher just sent it, or if you got in touch, but I recall it sat on my desk for uh, several months. I think it is it 2019 publication date in this book. Yes, that's correct. 2019. Okay, so I, I think you or your publisher sent it to me back closer to when it came out, and it it sat there for a while. There there's a lot of books do show up here. Uh, and I had to admit, I, I didn't know who J. William Jones was. I wasn't sure what Baptists had to do with anything. Uh, it does have a very striking cover of the stars and bars in the background, but it's uh, all black and white and mostly black. Uh, so it's, I wouldn't say sinister, but it's, uh, it, 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 it's striking in a, uh, not in an inspiring way, but a sort of... Uh, well, terrifying is too strong a word, but uh, but it, it's well. You see, it got my attention, um, and it's one of those books where I regret I didn't tear open the the plastic the day I got it and read it then because uh, J. William Jones is quite a character. <laughs> uh, I, I let me start by asking: How did you uh, encounter J. William Jones for the first time? Uh, yeah, well, the uh, the first time I encountered J. William Jones was uh, by reading Charles Reagan Wilson's Baptized in Blood, and uh, J. William Jones uh, has a, a chapter dedicated uh, to him there. Wilson uh, refers to him as the evangelist of the lost cause, and uh, at the time, I was working on uh, a Ph.D. At, uh, at Baylor Baptist University. Uh, I was studying with Doug Weaver, a uh, Baptist scholar, and uh, what jumped out at me was that uh, Jones himself was a Baptist minister, and so uh, he seemed like a good opportunity to kind of combine my my two interests, uh, Civil War history and history of American religion. Uh, and so uh, I felt very fortunate to um, – uh, I had one Civil War scholar tell me it, it seemed like it was a bird's nest on the ground that someone had not already written a, a biography of him, and so uh, fortunate was able to, to do that. Oh, that. That is a great phrase. It, it really uh, – it, well, I sort of, that that did occur to me as I was reading. It's like, wow, th- this guy should be better known. Um, he, well, see, you make a number of points throughout the book, um, and one of which that I just want to start with is the religious aspect. Uh, he's a Baptist minister, and you point out that throughout much of uh, Civil War writing on religion and. There's surprisingly little of that, given how important the topic was at the time. Uh, there's there's a kind of common understanding that within the armies, and certainly within the Confederate Army, that chaplains, ministers, missionaries, more or less put denominal, denominationalism behind them and kind of came up with a, a common religious viewpoint. And and this is a major point in your book, so I'd, we're, let me just we're going to take a break in a couple minutes. So just we can just get started on that right now. What um, you clearly don't agree with that. Uh, no, um, and that was one thing that uh, another thing that attracted me to J. William Jones, uh, having studied nineteenth-century um, American religion. And uh, seeing this context of intense denominational rivalries, uh, this context of anti-Catholicism, 
and uh, and reading accounts of Confederate revivals as being these broad ecumenical movements, um, and sometimes it's a little uh, kind of kind of fuzzy what ecumenism means uh, in in that context and how those Confederate revivals. Uh, merged into the the lost cause narrative and how that was also an ecumenical uh, an ecumenical movement uh, that just struck me as as strange um, that 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 uh, really would have been um, the these uh, uh, this place where those denominational rivalries had been muted uh, or set aside and so that's one thing that made me want to pursue Jones to see if his public uh, his his published um, uh, discussions of the Confederate revivals and these halcyon days of denominational fraternity, if that actually aligned with his private views. And uh, what what I discovered was that they did not. And so that was one of the mysteries I wanted to unravel, uh, unravel here was, uh, was denominationalism bleeding into those published works about the supposed ecumenism uh, in, the, uh, in the Confederate army? Um, and so, um, so yeah. But again, it was it was a, a something that didn't sit right with me initially, and and something I wanted to try and unpack with his life and story. So when we talk about denominations, uh, what what were the popular denominations, and and you know how many people adhered to them uh, in this era? Sure. Yeah. You've uh, normally uh, I, I concentrate a lot on. Um, so-called evangelical denominations, mm-hmm. uh, primarily looking at Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, um, and, and scholars love to bat around, um, as scholars do, exactly what evangelicalism means. Uh, to Jones, however, I think he pretty much meant Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians, and those were the three groups that had the largest numbers of chaplains uh, in the Confederate Army. Uh, so uh, so that's those are the three primary groups that I look at when I talk about evangelical religion in the Confederate Army. Okay, so we'll we'll take a short break and come back with that, and we're going to talk about the rivalries among those groups and how uh, Jones uh, did uh, b- both played into that, but also uh, uh, worked together with others. That is one of the numerous and interesting subplots of this book, Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists, and the Development of Confederate Memory. We're talking with author Christopher C. Moore. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. 
Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking tonight with Christopher C. Moore, author of Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists and the Development of Confederate Memory. We were just beginning to talk about the role of Jones as a, a chaplain in the Confederate Army in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia uh, during the war. And at that time, uh, you know, listeners, most of you know, there were revivals in the Confederate Army. Uh, did these happen throughout the war? When, when did they take place, Christopher? Um, there's some debate on exactly when they began, uh, mm-hmm. but a general consensus is by late 1862. Uh, these revivals have uh, seemed to have uh, have have started and continue in some form uh, until the very end of the war. Uh, but uh, around uh, around late 1862, maybe fall of 1862, is is normally when they're dated as beginning. You make an interesting point that they that, that scholars have argued whether revivals are encouraged more after the Confederates have won a battle or lost a battle. Uh, how, how did that work? Sure, yeah, and I think that is an is is an interesting point. I mean, I don't think it's just academic uh, hair splitting to to talk mm-hmm. about the 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 timing of these revivals because it taps into uh, a, a theological narrative that many Confederates or many you know uh, Americans during the time believed, which was this. Uh, sense of God's uh, ret- retributive justice, this retribution, mm. retribution theology, which um, it kind of also ties into that Jeremiah tradition. Uh, you know, bad things are happening to us because we've strayed from God, and you know that gives you not only the ability to interpret the past or interpret bad things that have happened to you. Uh, in this case, lost battles, uh, but it also gives you uh, a way of controlling the future. Uh, and so that's one way that religion functions here. And uh, in terms of explaining uh, through a religious lens why things are going bad for the Confederacy or why things are going good for the Confederacy. Uh, and so uh, in some ways, and some scholars have certainly made this, this case, um, even late into the war, uh, in, in some ways religion's being used as uh, – I, I don't want to say it's, it's deluding people, but in, in, in some cases perhaps it is as you have folks like – J. William Jones marching through the the trenches of Petersburg, saying, "Listen, you know, we're we're just one big victory from this this whole thing turning around." Uh, and so, religion could be used to prolong uh, perhaps what was inevitable at that point. 
Um, uh, and so anyway, that's why I think that the timing of when these revivals happen, are they occurring after something horrible has happened or after something good has happened from the Confederate perspective? I think that's that's worth noting. And these revivals do actually cause a substantial number of conversions. A lot of people uh, join the church or, or express themselves as being born again uh, as a result of this. Uh, you quote a range of numbers on this. Is there any rough idea how many people participated in these revivals? Uh, well, Jones is going to estimate around you know, fifteen thousand uh, converts in the in the Army of Northern Virginia. Of course, much of my book is calling into question how much we can trust Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you have others who wrote on the revivals, uh, Methodist. A uh, minister named uh, William Bennett, who estimates around 150,000, uh, and even modern-day scholars kind of hover around 100,000 uh, uh, mm-hmm. converts. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is during a time when a lot of people were espousing perhaps religion in general. I think George Rabel estimates no more than around a third of Confederates were actually you know, uh, regular churchgoers before the revivals of 1862. Um, but but a lot of these uh, a lot of these soldiers have a, a general knowledge of, uh, of of Christianity in this in, in this case. Now, one part of the book I found particularly interesting, maybe because it's different enough from my own experience uh, as a reader, uh, was to read about the the differences among the not only among the denominations, not only. Um, the way Baptist and Methodist ministers might collaborate and cooperate uh, on the one hand, but also the way, the way they might differ, even within uh, uh, the Baptist denomination. There, mm. were, there were these theological and, and doctrinal uh, points of contention that seem uh, uh, fairly esoteric, but, but obviously they were taken very seriously. Uh, can you talk about what, uh, what, what separates one from another? Uh, yeah, with within the um, uh, w- within the Baptists themselves, mm-hmm. and, you, and you see this come up a lot in Baptist newspapers. Uh, issues that may have not made it into you know mainstream newspapers become you know, very big deals uh, for for Baptists and uh, like the uh, Religious Herald out of, out of Virginia or the Biblical Recorder in North Carolina. These Baptist newspapers, and uh, you certainly have some Baptists that are uh, because of their uh, adherence to the separation of church and state, uh, they are a little bit hesitant about state-sponsored chaplains, and so you mm-hmm. know that that's part of the motivation to have these uh, these different types of uh, ministers in the army. You know, you've got state-sponsored chaplains, you've got denominational army missionaries, you've got uh, local congregations that support army evangelists. Uh, so you have that as one debate, but even more important, I think, for Baptist in particular are the ways that people are converting uh, in the armies. You have this sense that folks are coming in droves, at least if we believe Jones and and others, that Mm -hmm. that folks are converting in droves. They're asking to be baptized. And if you're a Baptist chaplain who is loyal to your denominational beliefs, then you want to baptize that person, number one, by full immersion, and number two, as a Baptist. Uh, But in the – during the the war, you have – 
people who were converting to to Methodism and Presbyterianism or, uh, and wanting to be baptized as such. And so this becomes an argument among Baptists uh, whether it's okay when someone comes to you to, to refer them to a Methodist, uh, to refer them elsewhere, uh, kind of like the way that the Santa Claus does in uh, a Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, you know, I, I don't have what you're looking for, but you know, this this store does. Uh, and so again, it, it may uh, to to many of us may not seem like it's that huge of a deal, but to to these folks, it was a, a very big deal. And uh, and I would argue that it was a big enough deal for J. William Jones that it colored pretty much everything that he did. The 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 terms of it are, are I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but alien immersion. The idea, I guess, that's being baptized by someone who's not not in your denomination. Right. Uh, exactly. So, for example, if you had a uh, a Methodist who who converted or or who said they wanted to be you know baptized or they they wanted to be a Baptist, then very likely in the nineteenth century, a Baptist would not have uh, allowed for an alien immersion or a, an immersion that was not done by the the full immersion by a Baptist minister. And so they would have required a a rebaptism. and um and and kind of going back to something earlier that you 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 had mentioned about mm-hmm. you know the um, one of the prevalent arguments in the scholarship is that folks like Baptists or Methodist Presbyterians were willing to kind of um, you know, set that aside, uh, not really emphasize those uh, those theological differences or not emphasize those particularities. And that's one thing I think that Jones's story complicates. Um, he absolutely is committed to, for example, baptism by immersion. Uh, he there are these mythological stories of him cutting holes in. Uh, in the ice so that he can baptize people by immersion or him being in rushing rivers or in inside of union pickets. Uh, so he seems to have been willing to risk not only his life but the life of his convert uh, in order to, to stick to those particular Baptist doctrines. Uh, and I think that's important to bring up. The, uh, you talk also about the idea of, of forming army churches that that if you if you join a church, theoretically you join a, a particular congregation, but when you're in the army, there's no congregation there. And you point out that, that the idea comes up of forming these sort of non-denominational army churches, but if you're in one of those, you don't get the right paperwork. You don't get a certificate saying, I'm in a Baptist congregation, and I can now transfer to another one after the war because I got the right paper. Uh, Again, this all seems remarkable uh, from a 21st century perspective. Yeah, exactly. And, and that paperwork does become really important. I mean, you have uh, folks like Jones that are signing these baptism certificates so that when you go home, uh, you know, if you're fortunate enough to, to make it back home, make it back to a, to a home church, you can just be accepted into a local Baptist congregation uh, with the credentials that a Baptist chaplain or Baptist minister of some sort uh, has baptized you from the Baptist perspective, the, the proper way, you know, the, the way that you the, the Baptist thought you were supposed to be baptized. And, uh, and yeah, that becomes uh, and that becomes a controversy for a lot of, of Baptists, these army churches, because they are afraid that these denominational distinctions will necessarily not be emphasized. And they weren't, uh, and, and for good reason. That, that's one of those uh, places where you look at ecumenism in the Confederate revivals, and from one angle, you think, okay, these chaplains are being encouraged by people no less than, than Stonewall Jackson, encouraging them not to preach sectarian sermons. Uh, and so, okay, well, that looks like that's ecumenism. But from the other angle, 
the rationale for not preaching sectarian sermons is because the soldiers are so denominationally diverse. Uh, and so from that angle, it's actually respecting the denominational fidelity of the parish by not pushing your particular denomination on these soldiers in a time when chaplains were very scarce. It's not like it was a buffet where you could just go choose you know, which chaplain of which denomination you wanted. Uh, very often, there was such a scarcity of chaplains that you, you, you took what you could get. Uh, and so that's one reason that you're not hammering on a particular Baptist doctrine in a sermon um, you know, became crucial. Now, the after the war, uh, in his, his book, uh, Christ in the Camp, that Jones is perhaps best known for, or one of the books he's, he's best known for, uh, he emphasizes the, the collaboration and cooperation among uh, the different chaplains. But you point out that he, when he says among you know, essentially all denominations, he means all evangelical denominations, Baptists, uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, he most definitely does not mean Roman Catholics. Uh, tell us about where, where that fits into the picture. Uh, sure, and I think that's another one of those those places where, you know, if you take a step back and think, okay, well, J. William Jones, uh, evangelical Baptist minister, he's not crazy about Roman Catholics. That's not a groundbreaking observation. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it becomes important whenever you're trying to, to challenge this narrative of this broad ecumenism, because certainly after the war, Roman Catholics are absolutely involved in the promulgation of the, the, the lost cause. Uh, Abram Ryan is a, a great example of that. He's extremely popular uh, as a speaker and as a poet. Um, you know, Roman Catholic chaplains were, were certainly active in the Confederate Army. Uh, why this is important for Jones, I think, is because uh, he interprets the Confederate revivals through an evangelical Protestant lens. And these revivals for him become, uh, I think, the, the, the ultimate expression of God's favor on the Confederate army, on the Confederate cause, on the morality and the virtue of Confederate soldiers. And, and in Jones's mind, that is quintessentially evangelical religion. I mean, he thinks that that's, that's what God is blessing here, the cooperation of evangelical denominations. And if you push that out uh, to the post-war period and the lost cause, mm -hmm. I think you find a Jones who really doesn't know what to do with an Abram Ryan. Uh, he doesn't know how to situate Roman Catholics uh, into the Confederate mythology. Uh, even though we know that they were certainly a part of it, uh, part part of spreading that. Um, so again, I, I think that's uh, you know where Jones kind of uh, you know maybe maybe he's uh, I don't know that he's representative of, of every chaplain, but he certainly was a major enough player uh, in those Confederate revivals and in the dissemination of the lost cause that I think he complicates some of those prevalent treatments of ecumenism. I, I recall when um, Stephen Wood was on the show uh, pushing him on the title of his book The Religious World of Civil War Soldiers which meant the religious world of, of evangelical Protestant Civil War Soldiers he, he had very little to say about Catholics and uh, nothing about uh, Jews, Muslims anyone else and that that I don't know if it was intentional or just, just a world view that that's, that's religion and everything else is outside of it um, after the war is when uh, of course Jones starts to promulgate this uh, 
the, the lost cause memory in which he, he has to reconcile this cause that clearly has God's favor, yet it doesn't win the war, uh, clearly in his view. And you, you make a, a case that he really sees himself, uh, literally, as you say in the title, as an apostle, uh, that he is to uh, commissioned by Robert E. Lee himself, uh, just like Paul going forth from Jesus to spread the word. Uh, Jones sees it's his mission to spread the word. Is he delusional? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, I, I because I think in uh, as someone who is adamantly opposed to the lost cause, I, I, I certainly think a lot of his views borderline on the delusional. Uh, however, um, I, I think he's within the uh, uh, within the ballpark here of the way that a lot of uh, ministers interpreted the Civil War through that religious lens, uh, and and I realize it's you know it's. Um, you know, calling him an, an apostle of the lost cause. I mean, that that sounds like I think that's a, a nice title. I enjoy it, but it actually did become a an interpretive lens for me uh, mm-hmm. because I, I started to think that that's really what makes him tick. And I and I felt very fortunate. I mean, if you can, you're going to spend a lot of time with someone you're writing a biography of, and if you can find something that you're convinced, you know, I think this really is what animated uh, this individual. Uh, and and uh, and I stand by that. I, I think this idea that he somehow had special access to the Confederate Trinity, like Lee, Jackson, and Davis, that he somehow had an insight uh, and a personal commission, uh, that this is what what made him tick. And he felt like he needed to give the the post-war South a gospel, and he needed to give them saints. He gives them the gospel and the and the the faithful narrative of the American Civil War from his perspective, mm-hmm. and he gives them these saints, these incarnations of uh, Christian virtue, virtue as he interpreted them. So, uh, so yeah, that 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 term apostle really did become an interpretive lens for me throughout the book. We're going to take another short break, and I want to come back to that point of of uh, the, the incarnation of confederate goodness in in lee jackson and davis which jones certainly writes about we're talking tonight with christopher c moore he's the author of apostle of the lost cause j william jones baptists and the development of confederate memory i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio streaming live the leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking with Christopher C. Moore, author of Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists, and the Development of Confederate Memory. We've been talking about J. William Jones, a chaplain, a minister who serves the Army of Northern Virginia during the war, and after the war he begins promoting the lost cause. And Christopher, you point out he he you know, deifies practically uh, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, as these embodiments of, of Confederate virtue, uh, you have some some great phrases throughout the book, and uh, at one and and I uh, the question comes up: Did he really know Lee that well, or was he? And I'll quote you here: uh, an obsequious, starstruck ex-Confederate who dropped names to enhance his own reputation. Uh, I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Because he does come across that way to some extent, uh, he's obviously very serious about what he's doing. But his, he, you can't talk to him. I have the impression you couldn't talk to him for five minutes without finding out. Hey, I knew Robert E. Lee personally. Uh, <laughs> is that did he, how well did he know Robert E. Lee? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a good point. And and if and if you, it depends on who you're. Who you're talking to? If you if you would have asked Thomas Conley, he would have said that that Jones was just a petty sycophant that he didn't really know the, these guys very well at all. Uh, now he he does meet Robert E. Lee um, during the war, uh, but he really sidles up to Lee after the war uh, mm-hmm. when Lee's at uh, at Washington uh, College, which will become Washington and Lee University. And um, it, the way I see it is, uh, and I agree, I think that you, you really couldn't have been around him very long before that comes up. And, you know, you may have a few people rolling their eyes like, well, here he goes again. He's got to talk about the, the time he you know, saw Robert E. Lee. And, and, and the reason I, I think he would have been that way is because he seems adamant that that Lee, Jackson, and Davis, his Confederate past, Confederate revivals, that they are applicable in every possible situation. Uh, when he's talking to Baptist groups, he quotes the Bible, and then he quotes Stonewall Jackson uh, just seamlessly, as if Jackson would be you know, one, one of the biblical writers. Uh, when he is uh, working for the, the whole mission board, uh, he is he's printing pictures of, of Jefferson Davis in a Baptist newspaper, Jefferson Davis had once been a Baptist, but he, but he certainly wasn't, uh, you know, when he was president of the Confederacy. Uh, and this is just again something Jones just assumes that all white Southerners are going to be just as enamored uh, and uh, with these folks as he he is. And a lot of people were. I don't want to I don't want to uh, to to uh, to de-emphasize how important those figures were for the post-war South. Uh, but at the same time, I get the impression that he really cultivates a relationship with Davis and Lee after the war, and whatever interaction he does have with them, he magnifies 
in his mind, probably a hundredfold. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating there. About Davis, uh, my now-retired colleague Don Collins here at ECU wrote a book called The Death and Resurrection of Jefferson Davis, in which he argues that, uh, or demonstrates really how, how Davis's wartime reputation is, is very mixed in the Confederate South. Uh, and he's blamed by uh, a lot of people for the defeat. Uh, you, you pointed the example of Pollard, for example, uh, blaming Davis. But that by the time Davis dies, he has joined Lee and Jackson in the Confederate Trinity. He's become this hero. Did Was that partly Jones's doing, or did Jones encounter opposition when he said Davis is a saint on earth and people say, no, he was a terrible president? Well, I, I want to say that by the time that Jones was writing most of his his stuff about Jefferson Davis, mm-hmm. I, I think Davis's reputation had already undergone that rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did see pushback whenever uh, in Baptist newspapers, whenever Jones would talk about his close friendship with Jefferson Davis, uh, he would actually get pushback from other Baptists, thinking that he's trying to dredge up. Uh, you know these these animosities with the North when you have some people that wanted to kind of move on, uh, and here you go. Here's this ex-Confederate chaplain saying, "Hey, remember Jefferson Davis? Remember how he took it on the chin for everybody? Remember he how he's the martyr of the South?" And he's again inserting this into a Baptist newspaper, and so he did get a little bit of pushback uh, from that. But at the same time, he's going to get people that are supporting his viewpoint and and some people that that trust him un, uh, without question uh, because he says he's had this this close association with Davis and others as we're talking about uh, J William Jones tonight we may be giving the impression that he's a harmless crank or, or extremist uh, but in fact he's, he's very popular and, and gets a lot of attention but also his version of the lost cause, uh, in line with with that of, of Early and others at that time, uh, is not just that Longstreet cost the Battle of Gettysburg, but uh, there's also a strong emphasis on white supremacy. And uh, while slavery, in their view, was not the cause of the war, slavery wasn't such a bad thing. Uh, I, I think that 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 is pretty deeply baked into what Jones says, is it not? Absolutely, and 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 to be frank, I mean that was one of the most frustrating parts of writing this book was trying mm. to pin Jones down uh, on race, and not as much pin him down. I pretty much knew where he was, mm-hmm. but he looks like he is going out of his way not to talk about race, uh, not to talk about slavery. Uh, he's printing, you know, other people in the Southern Historical Society papers. He's printing some of the things they're saying about slavery uh, or race. Um, but he doesn't want to do it. And even when he is publishing letters of Lee, he's very careful to kind of uh, surgically remove uh, sections or at least ignore sections of Lee's letters that refer to the slaves at Arlington. Jones doesn't want that part. He uses euphemisms like uh, family matters or things like this. And as I was butting my head up against the wall wondering, why can't you know why can't I really nail him down here? Uh, it kind of occurred to me that that was very much his M.O. was this idea that you could narrate the American Civil War with slavery and race being tangential to the conversation, 
And I think that's why he still speaks. You know, some things like denominational ecumenism, some of that is, you know, that's kind of you know, academic footnotes that everyone may not be interested in that. Mm-hmm. But I do think he has relevance for modern day discourse because you have many people today who, uh, you know, they wouldn't consider themselves, you know, neo Confederates or anything like that. Who still seem to think you can narrate the Civil War uh, without race and slavery being central uh, to it? Uh, that they can be brought in, but it's just kind of part of this this mixture of a lot of other things that's happening, and it doesn't really have a central place. Uh, and so I think that for uh, for Jones, yeah, I mean, in one sense, that's an argument from silence. But I think in his particular case, based on his work, uh, that that's an, uh, an argument that, that that's a silence that speaks volumes at the same time that he felt that that wasn't really something he needed to address. He does mention it uh, somewhat in his uh, school history of the U.S., a, a book for a school book for children. Uh, but you mentioned briefly, and I would be remiss not to talk about it, the Southern Historical Society papers, uh, a major historical project to collect and publish primary source documents right after the war, uh, ostensibly just to have a, a collection for future historians to work from. Uh, Jones was president of that, the Southern Historical Society, for some time, and uh, clearly he did more than just neutrally collect documents. Uh, exactly, but but it, it was certainly uh, he certainly wanted to give the impression that what he was doing was he was collecting documents, sorting out and 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 being um, not indiscriminate, but you know claiming that he's going to be presenting both sides of the story and then letting future readers kind of sort that out. Uh, what he neglects to say is that he's presenting both sides of you know Confederates. Uh, you know he's having he having he's having rival Confederates that are going after each other about you know who did this, who did that, and um, he really does try to uh, give this impression that he's collecting sources, which of course he is not. He is he is the final redactor of these sources, and I would argue uh, as influential as the writers themselves. Uh, a good case in point is the, the character assassination of James Longstreet, which is a mm-hmm. campaign that lasts years and years and years. And he's he's printing, uh, you know, interviews from Longstreet. Uh, he's printing rejoinders from Jubal Early, and then in private correspondence to Jubal Early, he's saying, "I'm ready for you to slice up." Those are his words. I'm ready for you to slice up what is left of, of James <laughs> Longstreet. Um, so clearly, that redaction. He's got an agenda there, and and everyone, of course, has an agenda. But he's uh, he's really um, he's not showing his cards there. Uh, but but you you can you can you don't have to look too hard to see what he's what angle he's uh, he's 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 at there. So, in I was trying to summarize for myself what what to, how to think about Jones, and it seems to me he he succeeds in suffusing the lost cause with a religious glow, but not a specifically Baptist one. But he stays, yet he stays, as you show, to the end of his career, very strictly Baptist. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one one reason that I felt that this um, this kind of interpretive lens of apostleship, it kind of helped me. I told you I was, I was trying to kind of unravel how you have this fierce denominationalist uh, on mm-hmm. one hand who is talking about uh, ec- ecumenism in the Confederate revivals. And uh, again, I think that's probably 
needs to be more nuanced than, than it often is, exactly what that entailed. Uh, but I think what Jones does here is instead of downplaying his own denominational identity, he ends up trying to downplay the denominational identity of folks like Lee Jackson and Davis. Uh, as uh, Zachary Dresser uh, writes that um, – you know what Jones is trying to do is uh, construct this this common mode of Southern piety, and so I think that was one way that he held on to those denominational uh, loyalties, but at the same time felt this apostolic uh, commission, this drive to somehow paint Lee Jackson and Davis as above denominational sec- uh, rivalries, above petty squabbles, and and really cast them as 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 superhuman martyr-like figures. Well, you, you make the argument, indeed, you know, Christ-like even, which I thought one of the interesting connections you make is that, you know, that, that Christ dies for mankind's sins in, in that story. Uh, so while he's defeated temporarily on the cross, uh, ultimately victory will follow. And for for Jones, the Confederacy is defeated, but but he believes very clearly in its ultimate vindication. Uh, absolutely, and and that was and that that wasn't unique to Jones in the sense of uh, you know white Southerners looking at the the scriptures and saying, okay, we can locate ourselves in these scriptures. For example, mm-hmm. you had many white Southerners who looked at the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, looked at God's chosen people as being repeatedly uh, defeated, uh, you know, whether it was by the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans. And so they could locate themselves in that narrative and say that even though we were defeated, we are still central in the divine drama. We're still central in God's plan. And so Jones does that uh, with certainly with the, these Christ-like, martyr-like um, interpretations of the lives of Lee Jackson and Davis, where, uh, yes, uh, they are going to suffer on behalf of all white Southerners, mm-hmm. and ultimately they're going to be vindicated. So he locates uh, those figures, and by extension, all white Southerners in this kind of New Testament uh, uh, you know, eschatological promise. Um, and so um, uh, so very much religion you know, it, it, it can be used any – it's very multifaceted here. There's, you can yeah. use it in any number of ways, and, and that's the way that he's using it. So the, the, the lost cause, that belief then allows white Southerners to come to terms with their defeat. And as you point out, this is a, a tangent we can't get onto as we're just about out of time, but uh, he allows the white South to reintegrate into the United States, uh, no longer wishing to fight it, but – still confident that it's the better part of it, the part with the superior uh, closeness to God as well as the, the better generals and the better soldiers and uh, better culture and better better everything, really. Uh, everything but numbers is, is all they lack. Uh, I wish we could talk more about this book. It is, was really interesting. It, it uh, Listeners, if you have the slightest interest in religion in the Civil War, you'll want to read Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists and the Development of Confederate Memory, written by our guest tonight, Christopher C. Moore. Christopher, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate uh, you inviting me on the show. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.